Well, good morning. It is great to be with you. Like Nate said, my name is Chad Torreson, and I serve on staff at Canyon Hills Community Church as their young adults pastor. And I'm just so excited to be able to come here this morning and share God's word with you. I'm thankful for Nate and his commitment to the Renton area here. And I don't know, for me, it's just a great encouragement that all throughout the city, there are kingdom-minded, gospel-centered, Bible-preaching churches who are shining as lights in the midst of darkness. And it's so exciting that we are able to really link arms with one another. And I'm thankful for each and every single one of you. Uh, to get to know me a little bit, I uh, have a picture of my family uh, back there. Um, I have been married to my wife, Sarah, uh, for 10 years now, uh, and we have three uh, little girls. Uh, that is Lucy Piper, uh, who is five, uh, Calvary Hope, who is two, um, and uh, Georgia Grace, who is three months. Uh, so sleep is at a minimum in our household uh, right now. Uh, we are ones that love to have meanings uh, behind names. Uh, and so I'll, I'll share those with you. Lucy Piper, we named uh, Lucy because of Lucy in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, and then Piper after John Piper, uh, who is a, uh, a, a theologian and pastor who I admire greatly. Uh, Calvary Hope, uh, is uh, the one event that radically changed the trajectory of my wife and I's life was Calvary. Uh, and that event brings us much hope. Uh, and so we thought that name was very fitting. Uh, and then Georgia Grace. Uh, Georgia is the place where I met my wife, Sarah. Uh, we dated and got married while working at a camp in the North Georgia mountains. And so I like to say that we are the product of a camp relationship. <laughs> Uh, we've lived here in Seattle for about five years now. And before that, I served on staff at a church uh, in my hometown of Greenwood, Indiana, uh, which is just outside of uh, Indianapolis. Uh, and so this morning, the title of my message is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so to get us started, I want to ask you a question. What, uh, what is this? What is this? Beanie Babies, right? Uh, if you grew up in the 90s, you're fully aware of what Beanie Babies are, but they were, uh, they were advertised as a great investment that would make you millions of dollars in the future. All you had to do is buy as much of these Beanie Babies as you could with the different designs and things, and you were guaranteed to make millions of dollars. And so if you were like me, we collected a whole lot of them and actually found a collection like this on the, the internet here. Unfortunately, Beanie Babies didn't aspire to greatness uh, and actually the exact opposite. And today they're, they're practically useless. Um, and if you have some, they're probably being stored in a back room somewhere, or they are taking up space uh, at the landfill uh, as we speak. Now take Beanie Babies and compare that with Bitcoin. Anybody have Bitcoin? Anybody know what Bitcoin is? <laughs> Bitcoin started as a cryptocurrency in 2009 with a starting value of just about $0. No one thought it would be a thing. Then in 2011, the price jumped from about 30 cents up to $5. Anybody know what a Bitcoin is worth today? 
I, I looked it up uh, last night and Bitcoin today, one Bitcoin is worth $29,589. Imagine if you bought 7,000 Bitcoin for 30 cents each in 2011. How much money would that be worth today? $207 million to be exact. Well, that's exactly how much Stefan Thomas, a German-based programmer living in San Francisco has locked away right now. $207 million. Stefan has two guesses left to figure out the password that will let him unlock a small hard drive known as Iron Key which contains the private keys to a digital wallet that holds 7,002 Bitcoin. Back in 2011, somebody gave him these Bitcoin as a bit of a gag gift, and he stored the info on a hard drive and wrote the password on a piece of paper. The problem is that Mr. Thomas lost the piece of paper with the password on it, and he only has 10 guesses to, to correctly guess the password before the hard drive seizes up and its contents are lost forever. He has since tried eight times to figure out the password to no avail. Two guesses left, and if he doesn't guess correctly, the hard drive melts down and he forever loses $207 million. <laughs> Could you imagine that? And my point in sharing those stories here this morning is what we choose to invest our money in matters. And what we're gonna see in Philippians chapter three is that what we choose to invest our life in matters more. What is going to be worth the most in the end and what will actually be worthless? Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for this morning. God, thank you for Highlands Community Church and their commitment to the gospel, the commitment to your word. I pray, God, that you continue the work that you have started here, that people far from you would hear the good news, that they would desire to enter into a relationship with you, and that Highlands would be a light, Lord, in the midst of the darkness that is around us. God, as we turn this morning now to your word, I pray, Lord, that we clearly see who you are from it and what it is that you require from us. God, I pray that it wouldn't just be white noise. I pray that we wouldn't just show up to church to check it off the list and allow the words to go in one ear and out the other. But God, I pray that we would take to heart your word, realizing that it is living and active, that you are speaking through it here today. God, I pray that we would strive to take that word and apply it to our lives. And as we do that, Lord, that you would transform us from the inside out. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's your name that we pray, amen. I'm gonna start in verse one. I encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to go ahead and turn there. Philippians chapter three, verse one, it says this. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and it's a safeguard for you. 
Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the one who worship by the spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. My first point this morning is just simply adding to the gospel. We don't know what triggered Paul's explosive warning, but we do know that he's been fighting off the Judaizers for years. He's referring to them as dogs, as evildoers, as mutilators of the flesh. And to be honest, it just seems like he's pretty ticked off at them here. Why, why so harsh, Paul? Well, a Judaizer was a Jewish Christian who insisted that Gentile Christians must submit to the Mosaic law. And the church in Philippi was largely comprised of Gentile Christians. So these religious wolves were at that present moment traveling the trade routes from Jerusalem to Philippi, and they potentially could destroy the tiny flock that he had planted there with a promise of a deeper and more complete faith through the adoption of circumcision and observance of the law in addition to Jesus. If these Judaizers were to infiltrate these church plants, it would destroy the very work that Paul and Timothy had labored there about a decade before. And so Paul in his letter is warning them to watch out, to be aware of these false teachers. You see, this issue of adding and subtracting from the gospel was such a big deal. So big, in fact, that Paul, when he was on one of his earlier missionary journeys, he stopped, turned back, and went all the way back to Jerusalem to bring this issue of adding to the gospel before the apostles and elders of the church. We see this in Acts 15, verses two through five, in reference to the Jerusalem council. Acts 15, two says this, after Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue, this issue being the adding to the gospel. When they had been sent out uh, on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And so after much debate amongst the elders, Peter, the apostle Peter, stands up and gives testimony on how the Holy Spirit came to the Gentiles and cleansed their hearts by faith. And when he preached to Cornelius and his household, God made no distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. They were all, excuse me, they were all one in Christ and that it was not by the law that the Jews were saved, so why should the Jewish Christians put the yoke of the law upon the Gentiles? And so here in verse 11, we see Peter's big crescendo. He says, we believe 
that we will be saved through the grace of God or the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. See, the conclusion of the council was that the gospel alone is necessary for salvation. You, you can't add to it. And Paul, being a part of this consensus, I truly believe is where he gets the passion that comes from warning the Philippians about the Judaizers. He says, if you add to the gospel, you end up losing it. And so at this point this morning, I think we need to stop and discuss what is the gospel. Is If it is of utmost importance, then we better understand and better grasp it here today. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the son of God, died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over his enemies, which are sin and death, so that there is, now no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. Christ's perfect life was a life that we could never live. Christ's death was sufficient to pay the price for the sins of his people and Christ's resurrection demonstrated his victory over sin and death. You've grown up in church for any amount of time. You've probably heard the Bible verse, John 3, 16. And it simply says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then later in Romans 10, 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you, friend, you will be saved. I have the opportunity to teach our new believers class at Canyon Hills. And one of the lessons that we walk through is literally called the gospel. And we basically summarize the gospel in this way. It's four simple words. Jesus in my place. The theological term here is imputed righteousness. Christ takes my sin and I receive his righteousness. And this transaction takes place through faith. That is the only way that you and I, that we can have a right standing with God is by faith alone, by, through grace alone, in Christ alone. It is only in there where we will be saved. And so now as we turn back to our text in Philippians chapter three, we see that Paul makes the argument that if the Judaizers really wanted to follow the Mosaic law and circumcision in order to gain righteousness, he was way overqualified compared to them. In essence, Paul is bragging about his accomplishments. And we see this uh, in our second point that Jesus plus something equals nothing picking it up in verse four. It says, though I myself, Paul speaking here, have reason, in, reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, 
blameless. Paul here, he's boasting about his resume. He said he was circumcised in verse four, that he was circumcised on the eighth day. This means that he had total adherence to the Mosaic law, that he was an insider from the day one because he was circumcised on the appropriate day that the Mosaic law described. He was of the people of Israel, or more specifically, the race of a Jew. He was a pure blood thoroughbred, a chosen one, God's chosen nation, and he was one of them. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, of the 12 tribes of Israel. Benjamin was the only son born in the promised land and was the only tribe to be faithful to Judah and the house of David after the death of Solomon. Benjamin was the most, most spiritually strong. And King Saul, the very first king of Israel, was born from this tribe. And so he radiated insider pride, Paul did, because of this. It says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means he spoke Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. He had the best education in all of Jerusalem from Rabbi Gamaliel. It would be the equivalent of like going to Harvard or Yale. He had the best education that you could possibly imagine. And this guy was as privileged as they came. Without even lifting a finger, he had all that life could possibly offer him. And yet he didn't sit back like a trust fund baby. His track record of accomplishments was even more impressive than his upbringing. It says that he was a Pharisee. A Pharisee was an elite denomination within the nation of Israel. Only 6,000 of more than a million Jews at that time were Pharisees. They were an alt-right group that was so far conservative in their interpretation of the Torah that they separated themselves as far as humanly possible from unclean people and refused to interact with the Gentiles. It says that Paul was a zealous persecutor of the church, that he was unbelievably zealous and passionate about his faith. He led terrorism campaigns against the Jesus followers and others praised his devotion and intensity in preserving the purity of the Israelite people. And lastly, it says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. It wasn't that Paul was claiming to be perfect, but Pharisees assumed that a faithful Israelite could keep all of the Torah's 613 commandments. That sounds exhausting just thinking about that right now because the law provided rituals and procedures to receive forgiveness and purification. And so the expectation would be that you would adhere to all of these. And if you did that, then you would be blameless. And Paul is proclaiming that here in Philippians 3. So Paul invested his entire life, everything that he was about, uh, his entire life into his ethnic and religious heritage. But all of that changed the moment that he met Jesus. If you can remember earlier in Acts, Paul was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians when Jesus blinded him. It was there in that moment that everything Paul had been working towards in his life up till that very moment instantly became rubbish. 
He describes it in Philippians 3, 7, and 8. He says, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung so that I might gain Christ. Paul lost his incredible human assets and everything that went with it. He lost his status. He lost his friends. He lost his wealth, his leadership position, all for the sake of Jesus. And and for me, I look at that list. I'm like, great, Paul, you accomplished so much in your life. And all of these qualifications mean nothing to me as a Christian living in the 21st century in Seattle, Washington. So I got to thinking, what are some things that you and I were tempted to invest in or boast in that would add to the gospel? And here are four ways this morning we're tempted to add to the gospel. The first one is this, is Jesus plus good works. It's in essence that our confidence is in the good works in which we accomplish. So to be in God's good standing, I got to volunteer my time, give my money to charity, be nice to everyone, say hello and talk to strangers, give to the homeless people on the side of the road, don't say mean or hurtful things to people online. I don't steal, lie, curse, drink, or gossip. Or maybe you've heard it said, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with people that do that basically it is Jesus plus good works in order to be accepted before God. Or another way we're tempted to add to the gospel is Jesus plus prosperity. It's attaching the good news of Jesus to this idea that if we trust Jesus, then he will give me happy, healthy, and wealthy things for all of my life. I'll never get sick. I'll always have money in my wallet. I won't suffer. And we say, this is a fruit of following Jesus. And I'm gonna focus on the the gifts instead of the giver. Or it's Jesus plus signs and wonders. We say, yeah, I've experienced Jesus. I've, I've committed to the gospel, but I'm seeking after a special experience of power whether it's a miraculous movement of God or speaking in tongues or whatever it might be, because that signifies that I'm really, truly an all-in Christian. Or lastly, it's Jesus plus politics. And yes, I am going there. Let us listen. Every time we add an adjective to describe who we are as Christians, most likely means we're finding our identity and that thing opposed to our identity being in Christ. We say, I'm a liberal Christian. I'm a conservative Christian. I'm an American Christian. And listen, I'm not saying any of those things are inherently wrong. We should be involved in the civil processes of our government. What I am saying is that we need to make sure that that doesn't become the idol with which we worship. We are all tempted to add to the gospel and place our identities in the gifts instead of the giver. 
And the reality is when we focus on the gospel, when we focus on the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done, all of those other things become secondary. D.A. Carson says this about Philippians 3. He says, most people read these pages, I suspect, will never be greatly tempted to boast about their Jewish ancestry and their ancient rites of race and religious heritage, but we may be tempted to brag about still less important things, our wealth, our status, our education, our emotional stability, our families, our political or business successes, our denominational alignments, or even what version of the Bible we use. Be careful of people like that. They tend to regard everyone who is outside their little group as somehow inferior. Somewhere along the way, they inadvertently or even intentionally and maliciously imagine that faith in Christ Jesus and delight in him is a less important than their personal accomplishment. Instead, look for those whose constant confidence is Jesus Christ, whose constant boast is Jesus Christ, whose constant delight is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of their worship, the center of their gratitude, the center of their love, the center of their hope. Emulate those whose constant confidence and boast is in Jesus Christ and nothing else. I said it before and I'll say it again. The moment that we add to the gospel, we end up losing it. Jesus plus something equals nothing. Which brings us to our third point here. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And we pick it back up here in verse seven. He says, but everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. The good news of the gospel is that we can invest everything into Jesus and he's absolutely worth it. We don't need to add to him if he's everything we need. He's literally the best investment that you could ever make in your life. Everything else in this life is dung compared to gaining Christ because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And this reminds me of one of my favorite parables that Jesus taught found in Matthew 13, 44. I love it. It's just one verse that says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Imagine, put yourself in that guy's shoes here for just a second, that he's out traveling from one town to the next. And he's out in the middle of nowhere, kind of just walking along and trips on something 
and he looks down and it's this ridiculously amazing treasure. So rich, so abundant that he clearly he looks around and is like, is this a joke? Am I being like punked right now? Like, why is all of this treasure out here? But much to his disbelief as he looks around, he sees nowhere or nothing. And so he quickly covers up this treasure. He buries it and he returns back to his home. And he begins going through his house and selling off every possession that he owns. He's liquidating his cash because he's going to buy that field. And can you imagine the friends of this guy looking at him like, what in the world are you doing? Why in the world would you sell off all the things that you counted so dear for so long just like that? Why are you selling off that one car? Why are you selling off your sandal collection, the one that you absolutely love? Like, why, why are you doing this? You're not even a farmer. You don't, why are you buying a field? Like, it just wouldn't make sense to them. But I think in this passage, there's a phrase here that is the key to everything. And it's simply this. The guy says, or the, the passage says, in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has because he found a greater treasure. This guy has gotta be like, you have no idea this field is going to change everything. It's going to be worth it all in the end. Nothing compares to this worth. And so it is with Christ and our lives. This parable puts Paul's words in Philippians 3.8 into perspective. Verse eight, it says, indeed, I've counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's worth investing everything in. And this morning, I have to ask you, do you legitimately, authentically believe this? That Jesus is the greatest treasure? Is he worth it? Is everything else in this life completely rubbish. John Piper says it this way. He says, when we have little and have lost much, Christ comes and reveals himself as more valuable than what we have lost. And when we have much and are overflowing in abundance, Christ comes and shows that he is far superior to everything that we have. Paul invested all of his life in the works of the flesh. He had built up a profit through accomplishments and hard work. But when he met Christ on the road to Damascus, he realized that it was all rubbish. In his joy, he left it behind that he might gain Christ. And this morning, I have to ask you, can the same be said about you? What's holding you back from fully investing in Christ this morning? Are you busy trying to run after the fruit of Jesus instead of Jesus himself? And I wanna implore you that today could be the day of your salvation. All you must do is to let go of the things in which you are running 
uh, running and pursuing and turn into grab hold of Jesus. This morning, are you sitting here attempting to add to the gospel? You might understand who Jesus is and what he's done, but are you busy trying to chase that, that supernatural experience? Are you trying to find um, your identity in politics? Listen, no political leader, no party, no a, a government regime will bring the freedom and bring the security and, and to bring the salvation that only Jesus can. Are you busy trying to do enough so that God will be happy with you when your reality is in Christ, you are more than enough? I wanna challenge you to return to the gospel, realizing that Jesus is our greatest treasure. Nothing in this world will satisfy us. He is everything that we need. To close this morning, I want to read some lyrics to a worship song our team wrote up at Canyon Hills. And I think it so, it so clearly encapsulates this. The song is called Jesus My Treasure. And it says this. Riches beyond all measure could never satisfy my heart. Even the greatest pleasure only gratifies in part. All that this world can offer can never compare to all you are. You are my greatest treasure, the desire of my heart. Whatever it costs me, I give it up freely. Whatever you ask me, I'll gladly release because all that I have is yours to begin with. Lord, I surrender. I give you my heart. Jesus, my treasure, you are more than enough for me. At this time, I'm gonna invite everybody to stand. And I'm gonna pray just the simple prayer that, I, that this would be the cry of our hearts. That Jesus, my treasure, you are enough for me. Let's pray. God, thank you from your word here, we see that the pursuit of lesser things in this life will always lead us empty and broken. But in Jesus, we have everything that we need. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see that Jesus is the greatest treasure. Nothing else compares to him. And I, God, I pray for those in here this morning that may have never grabbed the hold of Jesus as their treasure. I pray, God, that they would humbly repent of their sin and turn and trust in you for their salvation here today. God, and I pray for those 
that would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I understand the gospel, but yet their pursuit are after the things of this world. Whether it be political power, whether it be signs and wonders, whether it be being good enough through good works or whatever it might be. God, I pray that we come back to the gospel realizing that in Christ, we have everything that we need. God, help us to see that uh, as we trust in you, we not only have forgiveness of our sin, but also Lord, abundant life here and now and eternal life in the life to come. God, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and not on the, the temporary circumstances of this life and realize, realizing God that our hope is within you. God, thank you for this word. Thank you for your love. God, we praise you and we love you. It's in your name that we pray, amen.